Hi, um, I'm Grace Oberhofer, and I am a composer, performer, um, occasional sound designer, and mime, uh, and I'm currently living in Brooklyn. Excellent. I'm so happy that you're here. Um, Me too. Yeah, <laughs> so exciting. Uh, I do want to start by um, asking a, a question that I always ask, like every single guest I have on the show, and that is what got you started in music in the first place? Yeah, um, I actually have really enjoyed all of the answers that I've heard on the podcast <laughs> to this. Um, I'm a big fan. Um, uh, so I actually started out uh, being surrounded a bit by music uh, because my mom actually uh, was an opera singer. I originally grew up in Tacoma, Washington, um, and my mom was really active with the Tacoma Opera there uh, growing up. So actually starting at like age three, I was listening to, um, do you remember like the cassettes of like uh, the magic flute mm -hmm. um, recordings. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember listening to that and I would kind of like try and sing along with the queen of the night um, in a very squeaky fashion. Um, and uh, and then I um, kept up with, you know, I, I was always really excited by music classes in um, elementary school and middle school. Um, and then in high school, I actually was able to attend the Tacoma School of the Arts, which is um, a public school it's kind of like a magnet school. You have to apply to get in. Um, and it uh, allows students to focus uh, both on academics and on their arts. So um, there's a visual arts department, there's a dance department um, there. And then um, the program I was a part of was the choral music program and the songwriting and audio recording program. Um, so I kind of focused on both of those in my elective time. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and that was really uh, the first place where I learned how to write music, uh, mostly pop songs. Although I did take some um, introductory music theory classes there as well. So I got to start writing for other instruments aside from just, you know, like my voice and a piano. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, um, and then from there, I went on to Tufts University where I majored in music. Um, and sort of kept up with this dual facet of still continuing to explore performing, um, but also like exploring composing as well. Um, and a little bit of theatrical sound design while I was in college too. Yeah, that's great. I feel like you also have just going to an art school for your high school time is kind of a unique experience that not everyone gets to have. Um, I've talked to a few people that have gone to an arts-based school and that was the majority of their secondary education. And then I've talked to others that, you know, have the stereotypical public school sort of experience. So do you feel like, you know, going to an art school has specially prepared you for what you're doing today and that sort of thing? Were you able to explore a little bit more than you may um, have if you were in kind of a structured public school environment? Uh, honestly, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think I had always been excited. I, I, you know, um, in elementary school and middle school, I did a lot of like community theater, summer camps and musical theater. Um, and I sang in choirs. Um, but it wasn't until I got to, um, soda as you call it, shout out to soda, um, <laughs> that, um, that I was able to actually think of myself as somebody who generates art rather than just mm -hmm. participating in it. And I think that was a really, really unique part of going to school there that everybody sort of felt like they were their own like purveyors of art. And there, and and um, it led to this just like really wonderfully supportive community where you could kind of do what you wanted. And the teachers would say like, yeah, well, how are you going to actualize that? And like, let's make it happen. And, um, and I think it ended up, um, 
teaching me from a very early age that, you know, um, there were ways to express all of the different things that I was feeling and thinking that were, you know, um, that also could equate to art making. Um, and so, uh, yes. And it also taught me that I could just kind of take the, take the helm. If I wanted to make something, I could just make it. Um, and, uh, and also I would say soda offered a lot of the tools that then allowed me to like continue to improve on what art I was making. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like schools like that are so structured to allow more exploration, creativity rise and like explore more ideas like composition and things like that, that might be kind of a hole in a public school education setting because there just isn't enough time to get that face time with the kids. So I think that's really awesome that you had that experience and that helped, you know, with your decision to go on to major in music. So can you talk a little bit more about your experience at Tufts and, you know, some of the projects you worked on or what kind of spurred your motivation to do what you do now? Totally. Um, so I went to uh, Tufts. I actually applied almost exclusively to liberal arts colleges. I had considered whether or not to apply to conservatory programs, either for voice or for composition. And my problem as a, as a high school senior, I was like, I can't pick, I can't choose. Uh, which path I want to pursue. And so I decided that if I went to a liberal arts college, I could sort of um, get that like rigorous academic context for a lot mm. of the art that I was making. Um, and then also I wouldn't have to pick, <laughs> which ended up working out really well for me. Um, the music department at Tufts was amazing. It's just got this uh, like very warm, um, supportive um, staff and faculty. Um, and, uh, and I was also able to uh, work a bit with the Tufts drama department, which was also really wonderful and fulfilling. Um, and so I would spend my days, I would, you know, go, <laughs> I would go to class. There were, there are a lot of gen ed requirements at Tufts as well. So I would go to sort of like my standard, like academic arts hybrid schedule. Um, and then in the evenings I would, you know, spend like 20 hours a week rehearsing for plays and musicals. Um, I was also a part of opera ensemble there. Um, and I was also a part of a mime troupe at Tufts. So I really got to explore like every, every facet that I could think of within the performing arts and music theater. Um, which then led me to, um, towards the end of my time there, thinking about how my composition could connect to all of this performance work and all this creative work that I was doing. Um, and so I ended up sound designing one of the drama department shows. Um, I was introduced there actually at Tufts to uh, Nathan Lee, who is the um, audio engineer for um, the uh, upcoming Icons Idols podcast I have, which I know we'll talk about later. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, uh, I was able to learn about these different facets of how composition and sound connect to theater um, and also to um, music theater. Um, so for my senior year, um, I took it upon myself to do a thesis, um, which was um, an, uh, uh, sorry, an operatic adaptation of Ibsen's A Doll's House. Um, so we, I was, I was able to kind of approach my uh, advisor, uh, Professor John McDonald, who's a stunning pianist and composer and say to him, I want to write an opera. And he said, 
great, let's make it happen. Um, so I ended up doing a summer scholars program the, the summer before my senior year where I was able to develop the libretto and do a lot of research into the different influences that Ibsen might've had musically during his uh, active playwriting years. Uh, and then I was able to put my own spin on things, write a score, and then through collaboration with Opera Ensemble with the beautiful Carol Master Domenico, who was also my voice teacher at school, um, I was able to uh, do a full, a full staging of the first draft of my opera, which in retrospect I, is pretty incredible. I don't think a lot of people get to do that. And I am so, so grateful that the that the faculty at Tufts just took me seriously and said like, yes, you wanna create this like, you know, hour and a half long opera and have it be staged and orchestrated, like we'll make that happen. Um, so yeah, I feel honestly just pretty lucky that I landed where I was for college. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love how passionate you are when you talk about all these experiences that you had and kind of how that led you into your professional life and the projects that you're doing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about who you are and what you do, because you do so many things like you are a composer and a performer, sound designer, music director, and you also mentioned mimes. So I want to talk about that a little bit more because that's pretty interesting. Uh, you said you were in a mime troupe in college. So how did you get involved in that? Yeah, I was. So it turns out it's now, it used to not be the only collegiate mime troupe in the country, but now it is, I think. Don't, <laughs> I guess don't quote me on that. I, I'm pretty sure it's the only one that's still standing, um, but it's Hype Mime Troupe, which is a tradition at Tufts. Um, one, it's one of the student theater groups. And um, I actually, I was approached like day one at Tufts, there was a big fair where they talked about all the different like student groups you could be a part of in theater there. The, the, student theater program there is really active and, and very, very strong. Um, and uh, somebody came up to me and said, hey, do you wanna be a mime? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> that sounds really <laughs> odd. Um, and then I, I had a friend who was in one of the shows um, at the end of that fall semester. And it was one of the most stunning theatrical experiences I had had at that point in my life. I was so stunned. Um, the way that the mime troupe works there is that they do silent sketch storytelling to, to music tracks. So um, it, it's not, it's not, uh, we, there's not as much guerrilla miming, which is where you like go out in the street and like try and engage people with imaginary props. It's definitely a, a bit more organized, a bit more staged. Um, but, um, but I found it so fascinating to have this art form that played with the balance of sound and silence and also was able to tell stories that were from, you know, complete alternate universes because you aren't dependent on having a specific space and having mm -hmm. a specific sense of reality. And so it led to just so much creativity and imagination and also just a lot of the very whimsical humor. Um, so yeah, so my sophomore year I auditioned and I got in and it was, yeah, it was one of the best things that happened to me at Tufts because the, the whole mime troupe is, was just so open and supportive and uh, again, full of like total whimsy. Um, so yeah, I've since actually done a little bit of miming. Um, there's a, there's a mime troupe in New York called Broken Box Mime Troupe, uh, which is actually 
was actually founded by some alumni who were before my time at Tufts um, from the but alumni from uh, Hype Mime Troop. Um, and they went on to create a professional troupe. Um, I'm a big fan of theirs. Uh, I've collaborated with them as a composer. Um, and then um, I've also done a couple of miming gigs through, you know, uh, different performers in uh, in broken box so yeah so um if anybody needs a mime uh <laughs> i'm always happy to dive in um and uh and i encourage everyone to explore that art form because it's so rewarding and it's interesting to to focus on a mime troupe as a composer but i think there was something about exploring timing separate from um, from scoring with music and you would not having the ability to make sound uh, mm -hmm. that I think taught me a lot about dramatic timing in my own composition, even though I wasn't necessarily marrying the two together when I was in the mime troupe. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting too. And how do you think like that whole experience that you had kind of relates to, you know, your life as a composer and performer and those things. Now, have you taken, you know, creative influences that you've had from miming and kind of use that in your professional life now? Yeah, I think, um, I think mime taught me a lot about the importance of, um, of, uh, building tension uh, just through the mm. storytelling alone and not not and you know enhancing that you can enhance that through music um, but it also it also taught me to think about the minimalist structures that you can have to still create an incredibly effective story um, and so when it comes to writing, you know, I, I write a lot of um, musicals and operas. Um, and when it comes to working with my collaborators there, a lot of times I think I sort of instinctually interpret, okay, well, like, how can we maximize the impact of this emotional moment or of this very poignant thought um, without, uh, without it coming up as like, you know, melodramatic or over the top, like thinking about how we can get the most bang for our buck. Um, in, in telling the story. And I think I, I learned that from, from hype, absolutely from that mime troupe. I also think uh, as, as a performing artist who has consistently relied on the fact that I know how to sing and I know how to, mm. and I like, I know how to talk. I really benefited from having that stripped away um, because that's really, you know, truly the most impressive um, impressive theatrical uh connection right is if, if you can connect with an audience just from your movement and your expression um then man everything else is going to be stunning you know <laughs> um yeah. so I think it it really stripped it down stripped theater down to the essentials for me that's that's awesome I always ask those questions because I'm always curious about you know a lot of the people that I have on the show do so many different things right I feel like that's part of being a musician in today's day and age. They have so many different projects they're working on. They wear so many different hats. And it's always interesting to find out how much those things relate to one another and kind of create the whole human. So that's, I always ask those questions because I'm always curious, especially with something like that, because it's not something that you would directly think, you know, right. miming, composing, how are they right. similar? How are they different? Yeah. So I think that's really awesome. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about your other things. I don't want to talk about miming this whole time because I know you do so many other projects. Um, so let's talk about some of your other, you know, current projects as a composer and a performer, sound designer, music director, all those things. So what are you currently working on? What are, what are you passionate about right now? 
Um, so, I mean, obviously we're in a very interesting time period where I think the things that I'm working on currently wouldn't necessarily, I feel like I wouldn't have necessarily predicted myself working on what I'm working on right now, uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, or I guess 18 months ago. Um, but, uh, but I am happy to say that I am working on a lot of projects right now in the writing phase and in the developmental phase. Um, I, um, I have um, a couple of um, music theater works that I'm developing with a couple collaborators for uh, children's theater or theater, honestly, like theater for all ages, um, trying to work within that uh, arena um, to uh, create some, some challenging pieces that can still, you know, be uh, relatable for, you know, an eight-year-old in the audience and a 16-year-old in the audience. And thinking about sort of that uh, that challenge as a as a writer, um, and then um, I also uh, am currently uh, gearing up for the release of a podcast of a uh, choral play that I uh, have. Um, uh, that I have been working on. I've been working on a series of four choral plays with my collaborator, Helen Banner, who's a, an awesome uh, playwright and librettist. Um, for uh, several years now, we started working together uh, back in 2016, I want to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we had been developing the series of four choral plays about Byzantine empresses and their rise to power called Icons Idols. And uh, we had been developing it for the stage and then the pandemic hit and we weren't sure exactly what we wanted to do, but we knew that we still wanted to keep working on the project. Um, And so uh, we had received a grant from the New York um, State Council on the Arts um, and uh, we wanted to put it to good use. Um, So we decided to uh, create a podcast adaptation of the first choral play, which is the original story that we had started working on back in 2016. So we kind of returned to that first piece um, and did this remote recording process last spring. And then we uh, worked with Nathan Lee, who I mentioned, who's a brilliant uh, sound designer and sound engineer. Um, And uh, and now next week, uh, September 22nd, uh, we are releasing the podcast, which feels really surreal and really exciting. So um, I'd say that's uh, that's mainly what I'm working on right this second. (laughs) That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about this um, this project that you've put together. what is it like having, obviously you're a female identifying person and a lot of your team also is working on this project. So can you talk a little bit about what is it like having women to collaborate with on such an awesome project? It is so great. Um, <laughs> I actually, I'm, I am so spoiled. Almost all of my collaborative projects, I um, I have the opera that I originally wrote. I collaborated with one of my dearest friends and collaborators, who's a female director, Alison Banco. Um, I uh, I have a, a musical, a dystopian bunny musical called Hot Cross Buns that I work on with uh, this like genius playwright, Julia Izumi, um, who's also actually a performer in the Icons Idols podcast. Um, I, I'm so spoiled in terms of my collaborations and I do not take that for granted. And I think with Icons Idols, what's so special is that um, 
is that almost all of the, well, all of the performers are women and gender non-binary performers, mm-hmm. uh, creates a different, um, a different conversation in the room in terms of reimagining these histories. You know, we're writing about a time in history where uh, women generally were not the ones to be in power. It's, it's controversial that these Byzantine empresses rose to power and changed the empire from iconoclastic to iconophilic. Um, and, uh, and I think it's really wonderful to have a group of, you know, brilliant uh, performers who uh, can, who see the nuance of that, not only in the history, but also the nuance of what it is to be um, not male <laughs> in our current society. Uh, I'm sure yeah. there's a more eloquent way to phrase that. Um, but I think there is a lot of nuance, especially when it comes to art making, when it comes to positions of leadership and positions of power to be a woman or um, a gender non-binary person. Um, and, uh, and, it's, and it's amazing to get to sort of reimagine this history through the lens of what it means to to have you know to give women and uh, and actually gender non-binary characters in the sh- in the show agency um, in a, in a time where perhaps uh, this it was unexpected um, and uh, yeah so it's it's been wonderful and we've had a lot of performers who have you know who actually were a part of you know day one that first uh, dev- like showcase production of the first play in 2016 and who have uh, sort of continued with the developmental process through until now. Um, yeah, I, I honestly, I'm so lucky. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't be more grateful um, to be uh, working with the collaborators that I'm working with. That's awesome. And what's, what's interesting about this project too, is you're kind of morphing this composition and storytelling medium together. And I think that's a really creative way to bring this project to life. So can you talk a little bit about those two, you know, creative processes and how they're relating to each other in this production? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it's been it's been interesting to kind of translate the storytelling for a purely audio format. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I I think I imagined it to be like a little, little bit easier than it actually was um, <laughs> because you know we we wrote the um, the initial plays to be staged live um, and there are a lot of different nuances there. There's of course visual cues that you won't necessarily get. Um, in the in the podcast, <laughs> um, and um, and there are also uh, certain timings that you know that are designed for somebody to walk on and off the stage, or are designed for you know something very dramatic like the silence and the stillness. Um, and so it really ended up becoming uh, an interesting combination, and also sound design challenge um, with this choral play. There's there are. A- a lot of, you know, sort of composed songs um, that are performed throughout as a means to tell the story. Some of it is incidental music. Um, and then there's also a fair amount of devised soundscapes that occur. So how we had previously done that um, in other productions is we had, you know, had everybody get in a circle and do sort of an, a warm up improvised, everybody make a sound. And then we, uh, w- you know, would just focus on the specific scene and create like the sounds of an oceanscape. And then I would sort of tailor it from there and so um it's a it was a it's a piece that's designed to be an in-person collaboration um and so uh what ended up happening for this piece is I had to think about it in terms of like okay well what should the overall shape 
what, what should the bones of the shape be? And then I could, and then remotely, we would have the performers sort of build on top of this initial like skeleton that I had built for these devised soundscapes so that we would get, you know, sort of like a full crescendo, decrescendo if it was needed or whatever the shape needed to be. Um, yeah, the composition process, I think for overall, uh, what I I learned with an audio setting is that, um, and I, I think I think my my collaborator Helen would also agree for the text is that the audio world just requires everything to be so much more specific, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I really had to get picky um, uh, in terms of what what I wanted um, the the structure of my, my composition positions to be because it's uh I have I've had the benefit in the past of being in a rehearsal room uh which is a lucky thing with music theater right um where uh usually if you're developing a new piece the composer's right there in the room and you know I definitely benefited from being like oh I don't like that no let's change it you know at a moment's notice and so I ended up for this uh, project, uh, in order to be more specific, it was sort of required of me uh, because of the nature, not only of the audio, but also the remote recording process, um, because we had, uh, it was, you know, uh, during a time where it was not safe to uh, have everybody in a rehearsal space. Also, a lot of our performers we'd worked with in the past were in different states at that point. Um, and so we decided to do the process entirely remotely. So everybody recorded in there, you know, at home studios, closets, bedrooms, et cetera, um, with the, whatever uh, equipment that they had, we supplied, you know, a few additional equipment needs if, if it was needed. And, um, and then for the songs, what uh, I ended up doing to make sure that everyone could record in a different location is I actually went through uh, all the, I don't know, like, 30 some songs in that and recorded all of the vocal parts myself in a, mm. in a garage band file with the tempo changes already built into the track. Um, and, and that process allowed me to really comb through my own composition, which I'm really great, you know, in retrospect, like glad that I had, um, uh, there were a few note changes that occurred after I, you know, sang through the part and I was like, Grace, why did you do that? Uh, like, why would you do that to that poor singer? Um, so, uh, yeah, so, um, it was a really enlightening experience to me about how, how satisfying it can be to get that really careful specificity that for me previously had really come at the end of a rehearsal process or a developmental process rather than the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I feel like a lot of people had to kind of go through figuring out all those extra technology that they never thought that they were ever going to have to do because of the pandemic. Like you were saying how you, you thought about having it as more of like a live setting originally, and then the pandemic happened and now you're having to record remotely and make sure everything lines up and you're having to record the vocals yourself. And I feel like the pandemic has kind of almost forced us to be much more tech savvy than we ever thought we were ever going to have to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And add all these extra layers to everything and I as as much as it seems like a pain in the butt at first I think that is kind of a positive right is that we I feel like are a little bit more tech savvy whether we like it necessarily or not um and I like how you took this project that you originally thought would be in a live setting and you've kind of put it on its head and twisted it and made it so it still worked in a remote setting which I really admire that you're able to persevere through that um and I feel like a lot of folks are having to do that sort of thing 
put on concerts that they never thought were going to end up being remote at all. They're having to pre-record them and post them and, you know, do live streams and all this sorts of uh, stuff because they can't have those live audiences. I'm hoping that eventually everybody will end up in a live audience setting again, but it only looks like it's happening for certain communities right now. So I do think that that's very admirable that you were able to change it and uh, change that setting as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I think, um, I, I spent a lot of time in the past, like 18 months sort of, yeah. In disbelief of like, well, I guess, yeah, no, I guess we're just going to do this. I guess we're just going (laughs) to figure it out. Um, and I, I'm really glad that, you know, I have again, collaborators, shout out to collaborators, Mm -hmm. because I think, I think, you know, without having been, you know, doing writing process with, with Helen, we might not have assembled upon this idea. Um, I, I mean, I, obviously we are not the only ones to think of adapting theater for a podcast during this pandemic time. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, um, but the, but I think our creativity was sort of forced to expand during this process. Um, and, and, you know, it ended up working out in, in really interesting ways as well. Um, uh, obviously the podcast is coming out and it's a 12 episode retelling of the whole story. So, um, it's, uh, it's an expanded version, but actually we, uh, had had, um, this archive residency with the, um, IRT and new Ohio theaters in the village in, in, uh, New York. Um, and we were supposed to actually have a world premiere in fall, um, 2020, ha ha ha, um, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> didn't happen. Um, but because we were developing this audio recording, we were actually able to collaborate with the new Ohio theater space, right. As they were reopening to, you know, um, to, you know, controlled capacity entrance for audience members. And because we had recorded the process remotely, we didn't have to worry about the risks of having live performers in the space. Um, and we were able to create an audio narrative installation, which was Icons Idols in the Purple Room this past spring, uh, where audience members would have their own like personal uh, headphones and, uh, and uh, MP3 player and walk through listening to a shortened version of the narrative as they walked through this immersive space. We kind of transformed the stage of the theater to be become a set that the audience members walked through socially distanced um, and masked, obviously. <laughs> um, and uh, and I think, you know, I, I don't think that that idea of having, you know, an, an immersive audio installation uh, would have ever happened um, were it not for the, con- the creative constraints that we mm. all experienced the past year and a half. So um, and it and it was it was so cool to get to collaborate. We collaborated with um, uh, with a scenic designer, Afsun Pajafar, um, who just was so creative uh, and honestly like made miracles out of <laughs> a very short amount of like load and time and preparation. And um, and I yeah and I and now I, I think uh, probably Icons Idols will continue to explore that avenue of having you know audio with immersive and then of course uh, with this podcast form. We're just so excited that we get to share the, the, this story with, you know, people all over the world. Um, uh, so that's, that's really exciting as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Things, yeah. Things you don't expect. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, you had sent me your bio um, when you emailed me about reaching out about being on the show. And I love the first part of your bio because you are talking about how you tell stories about women, either real or imagined, who are not perfect, but rather amazing. I like love that. I was like, Ooh. I think I got chills a little bit. I, I thought that was so great. Um, 
And so I, I really love how you're, you're focusing on women empowerment. You're having people collaborating on a project that are women, also non-binary folks. Um, and you're really trying to promote that idea and challenge the norms, right? Like we were talking about before. Um, so for you, as far as this project goes, you know, the, you talked about um, the release date and everything like that. Do you have an idea of any sort of future projects? that you're willing to share that you might be working on in the future? Sure. Yeah. Um, So I think uh, Icons Idols, uh, we are, uh, we currently have three out of the four plays written um, Mm. and we're interested in developing those further. Um, Can't say anything uh, more specific than that, (laughs) Um, but, uh, but yeah, but this, uh, this podcast is actually just like the first part of a really epic series. Um, Play two involves, you know, someone's eyes being gouged out and lots of bears and coups and craziness part three involves uh like the power of this um of this nunnery uh on uh, the island of Prinkipo and deals with exile and political gain and um and play four is sort of a return to the court that you see in Irini but with like a uh, two generations down in terms of this family lineage of female empresses um so it's it's exciting to think about you know the possibilities from here either in the audio or, or, or returning to the stage. Um, in, in my other work, I mentioned, I have, uh, this, uh, uh, dystopian bunny musical, um, called Hot Cross Buns, uh, which is, um, uh, with my, uh, collaborator, Julia Izumi. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's so much fun. Uh, we, I sort of developed a whole world of bunny pop uh, for <laughs> for the show, which is influenced by like you know like '90s Swedish invasion American pop and and a little bit of J-pop and K-pop influence as well. Um, because let's be honest, J-pop and K-pop do pop music like better than anyone in the world right mm-hmm. now. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's pretty amazing. I'm very inspired. Um, and uh, and we uh, just recently actually had a developmental process. Um, with uh, Seattle Repertory Theater to further develop that musical, which was so amazing to get to do that over Zoom. Yet again, it was like another series of me recording uh, myself singing all the parts on all of the GarageBand files uh, for this reading because it was a very you know short developmental process, so we didn't have enough time for the performers to learn the music. So I just... <laughs> recorded all the reference tracks um but it taught us so much about the piece so i think we're really excited to see where that goes next um and then um yeah and then i guess continuing to to write and develop further um i also uh one thing that i'm determined to do this year is that i have a band um called hatless in public which is with uh two dear fellow singer songwriters uh who i met in college we're all really close friends um and we decided to make a band uh right actually like a few months before um, the pandemic. And so um, I think a goal for us this year is to uh, do some more recording process and maybe uh, record some of the songs that we've been creating. Um, so yeah, that's that's what's on the books other than um, my uh, working on my two uh, children's productions. That's so, awesome. So many things. That's so, so great. So many things. Yeah. No, keeping busy is awesome. Um, so for your current project that's coming out, the podcast, how can people um, access it when it comes out? Because this episode is going to release after um, you have released your show. So how can people access uh, the podcast? 
Absolutely. So um, if you haven't tuned in already, you can uh, find the podcast anywhere and like on all major podcast platforms um, by searching icons, idols, Irini. Uh, it'll be the first one to pop up. Um, the podcast is just called Icons, Idols, Irini. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you uh, are not sure exactly, if you're like new to podcast land, you can also listen to it on our browser uh, on our website, which is www.byzantinecoralproject.com slash podcast. Um, and that'll give you links to all of the uh, different apps that we're on and also uh, give you a browser option to like listen to it at your computer. Excellent. Grace, I want to thank you so much for being on, um, for sharing your experiences, for telling us about your awesome projects. I think you're doing a wonderful job of promoting all of the work that we talk about on this show. Everybody should go check out the podcast as well. Use the links that um, Grace has described. I will also include those links um, in the description for the episode as well. So if you want to check out the podcast, you can check it out there. Awesome. Thank you so much. And also thanks to you, Cassidy, for doing so much amazing work Thank with this you. podcast. I, I honestly get such joy from listening to this, like while I'm jogging and, um, it's a, a joy to like, get to share in this space with all of these other amazing people. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. 